0: Joining us today on Lattes with Leaders, I'm Zainab. and I'm Trisha, and we're excited for you to join us as we catch up over coffee with CEOs and executives from diverse backgrounds and industries.
1: We seek to discover what is unique about each leader and educate you guys on new and interesting topics. Our conversations seek to enlighten and inspire people from around the world to realize that ordinary people can achieve extraordinary things.
0: Every few episodes, we'll deliver a wildcard episode where we aim to bring you insights from a leader who has grown a unique organization or strategy in an alternative
2: or underserved industry. If you can't change the world for everybody, you can change the world for somebody.
0: On today's episode, we're speaking with Miriam Mason, the co-founder and country director of Educate, an education not-for-profit based in Sierra Leone. Miriam trained as a teacher at Cambridge and taught in the UK for eight years before visiting Sierra Leone, at that time the poorest country in the world. Miriam takes us through her reasons for quitting her comfy career in the UK and moving to Sierra Leone to start Educate. Her organization started with a school for 20 children and now educates over 2,500 students across nine primary and secondary schools. In recognition of her achievements, Miriam received an MBE in 2013 and the World of Children Education Award in 2015. We're excited to speak with Miriam about how she grew this not-for-profit from scratch in a volatile situation and how she influenced positive change across the education system of Sierra Leone.
1: Welcome to Lattes with Leaders, Miriam.
2: It's great to be here.
1: Thank you. It's so great to reconnect with you. For the backstory of how we know each other, I met Miriam when I was at secondary school, so I must have been 11 or 12. Your
2: school fundraised for us for my initial departure. Yeah.
1: I remember you coming and talking about the experiences of children in Sierra Leone as well and how I think it was just the way you explained it and kind of it being so outside of my comfort zone coming from a middle class family in the UK. I felt really connected to the experiences you were sharing. Would you like to share some of your story as well and kind of how you ended up doing
2: what you do? So I ran an organization called Educade Sierra Leone. Um, which means that I live in Sierra Leone and I've been out there now since um, 2000. I first visited in 97 when I was teaching in London and I would to and fro every holiday. I would go out to Sierra Leone and um, just to see what was happening with ours, the children that we were sponsoring. And it was just clear that It wasn't really worth doing because the quality of what was available to be paid for wasn't going to change the lives of the kids that we were really supporting. We decided that we would work towards me moving out and starting our own school and where we could control the quality a bit more. And in 2000, I did that and um, started our first school on the veranda at the back of a rented house with 20 kids. And um, I just got in touch with a pastor locally, a couple of pastors, and sort of said to them, you know, I know there are lots of children out of school coming towards the end of the war. You know, schools had been particularly targeted, so loads of schools had been burnt down. People, who, There was no free education. So if the person who was paying for you died, that was the end of your education. So for so many different reasons, Um Children were out of school. Maybe they'd been fighting the war. Maybe they were looking after their younger siblings, whatever had happened. And so um, I just said, okay, can you, you know, send along anybody that's interested? And uh, initially we recruited 20 kids. And uh, very, very quickly those numbers grew. Um, and we were under the tree when it wasn't raining. We were on the back veranda with our umbrellas up I've got some great f- photos of the early days and you know crazy you know with your trying to keep your maths book dry um with your umbrella <laughs> on the back veranda. it's quite unusual
1: as well where you talk about your Journey doing that because generally, where people get their first job and you're in your 20s, it's all about having fun, spending whatever money you have, going on maybe holidays to like south of France or Italy, or maybe a camping trip to the UK. How did it go from the life that you thought you were going to have at that age to then this
2: being the passion and where you've ended up? When I started visiting Sierra Leone of see the sponsorship program, that's when it started sort of feeling like, you know what, I would enjoy, and some people really wouldn't, but I would enjoy trying to see whether I could make a difference here to the quality of what's being offered to the youngsters we're working with. So it was... Um, naivety personified. I hadn't a clue what I was <laughs> heading off into. And I went off and and threw my life into the back of a container into a, you know, one of those containers and um off I went, thinking, well, worst comes to the worst, I can always come back. And, you know, that is the difference is that I have choices. And you know, the youngsters that I live and work with, their choices are pretty limited. But education is a very powerful transformer. So I get to be part of those those stories um, and can use the, you know, advantages of the good education I accessed because of where I was planted to uh, hopefully to make a difference elsewhere.
0: Absolutely. And what I really resonate
2: with when
0: you were just speaking was the, the fact that you said that you just went there completely naive. You've been there before, but it's like you... This was the first time you really embedding yourself in this environment. And the timing there was quite crucial because you went right after the Civil War, right? And that was a period of uh, incredible, you know, horror and and challenge for the community. And I want to say that you yourself had a lot of courage to have made the decision to go at that time. How did you feel when you first arrived and how did you... Perceive the community, and how did you embed yourself in the community?
2: I arrived July 2000, and the war ended in um, just the beginning of 2002. It wasn't in Freetown at that time, but it was around and about the rest of the country. So there was there was just a lot of weapons in the UK. We're not used to seeing people going around with guns, you know. In the states, you know, that's much more common, but. In the UK, we're really not used to that. And that was quite disconcerting, you know, that all the police would be armed and the military would be around with their weaponry. Um, Curfew, you know, it varied, but sometimes it would be a 3 p.m. to 10 a.m. curfew. You had five hours to get out and do whatever shopping you needed to do and then get back in. And a lot of damaged buildings, people living very hand to mouth you know, even in the city.
1: I don't know if it feels like this looking back, but for me, I'm like, you took a big risk and a big bet, kind of going out there. But it's evidently paid off because you've got how many schools now over there?
2: Well, so we run five, and we're working with over a thousand. Wow! Um, yeah, in different ways. So we we our little five where we are. That's where we do our sort of key learning and test things out and um, and take that learning out into our partner schools yeah.
1: Last year was it last year that you got your MBE? A couple of years now yeah um, three or four years. I think I'll let you explain what one is maybe and how it came
2: about. So um, an MBE is a member of the British Empire and it's uh, an award given by the Queen usually announced in the New Year's Honours list in on 1st of January. And then, so you know, all sorts of things that people have done. And some of my friends had recommended me for one. And uh, it was quite funny. I got a summons to the British High Commission. I was like, Lord, what have I done? <laughs> and they called me to find out whether or not I would accept if I was given one. So... Um, Yes, I would. And the other thing that was nice for me was I didn't come back to the UK and, you know, go and pat the corgis. I I, um, received mine at uh, the High Commission in Sierra Leone in Freetown, and they allowed me to invite 100 people. They hosted 100 people at an event at the High Commission.
1: And an incredible honour, I imagine, um, because that's not the kind of award that gets given lightly. So I think it's testament to all the hard work that you've obviously put in educating thousands of people at this point across the country. And we've talked a little bit about um, kind of how you started that first school and how you kind of went about then additional schools. How did you actually um, engage people to your
2: cause? In Sierra Leone, it's been about role modelling, a different way of educating and role modelling um, uh, democratic sort of education where it's respectful. Actually, September twenty one, corporal punishment has now been banned in Sierra Leone. Big deal. But when we go into a new school and we start talking about no canes, they're like. <laughs> flipping idiot white people, you don't understand African children, it will wreak havoc. And we have to really persuade people that this is a positive way forward. As we get going, then they start becoming really proud of having friendly relationships with their children, children wanting to come to school now. So that's a big part of it is role modeling that. And then I think You know, like when I came and spoke at St. John Fisher and, you know, speak in different schools, it's getting, you know, I, I, I don't know whether I said it to you, but I quite possibly did. You know, what do you think the kids I work with are like? And I'll say to kids in the UK, they're like you. You know, they're in a very different context, but they're like you. They want to be able to earn their own living and take care of themselves and be happy and safe and like you. And I, I, you know, I've got my four words, strong, joyful, courageous, resilient, you know, and that's the, those are the words I want you to think about when you think about our, our youngsters, none of this helpless, hopeless, um, you know, they need us to come and help them. <laughs> They just need a level playing ground. Nobody paid for their education. They just need the same support that you and I take for granted. If you're in a Western country, you've got that just handed to you on a plate.
0: How have you managed to keep this quality across all the schools in your network, be it your schools or the other schools that you work with? What what does it mean to scale a high quality education?
2: That's, I mean, it is always going to scale is challenging, isn't it? Um, you know, like yes, is... is is one thing. Um, the bits on and beyond, and it's about having people that have been through it themselves and believe in it. So ninety percent of my staff are past pupils, so they've lived it themselves. They were raised in a in you know where they were not beaten, so they don't think it's necessary. Um, they were brought up in in ways where thinking is encouraged, critical thinking is encouraged, where um, kindness and community service was valued. It's not just your maths and English grades. Um, So, you know, all of the educated schools are run by educadians. Um, All of the outreach programs, you know, I've got maybe three non-educadians, but they very much buy into, if they don't buy into it, it's not going to last, they're going to leave because it's, it, they won't be at piece there. Um, but the majority of our, what we call cluster mentors. So somebody who looks after five schools, they, a cluster mentor has five schools and they go into each school once a week. Um, you know, nearly all of them are past pupils. So they've been through that. And I'm very hands-on about on non-stop training. And I try to role model that. I've only finished my own studies two years ago. Um, and I'm, Trying to see if I can find time and money to do a master's in psychology, but not not role, role modeling for the
0: students to, to continue Absolutely. or continued learning. There you go.
2: And always reading, and you know, sharing what we're reading and sharing what we're thinking about, listening to podcasts, um, meeting interesting people online through podcasts and all sorts. You know, so so I think that's how you know we're very hands on trying to sort of pass that whole way of thinking on.
1: I think if you haven't come from the kind of society or structural backgrounds that we've all come from actually it's not that easy to do to put your hand up and say look I can just go and do this and Mm -hmm. that's part of the reason we set up this podcast because we wanted to demonstrate that actually everyone can do this regardless where you come from and I imagine that for the pupils that you're teaching probably It's a question of can you do it more than like, oh, I'll just go and do that.
2: So, part of our way of working, what we call EVC, every voice counts, and so that's not just about I've got the right to a voice; it's I've got the responsibility to use my voice to make the world a better place, to make my class a better place, to make my school a better place. So, but you know, if I see something going wrong, I should speak out. You can't know at the beginning of the story at what point they will change. But the ones that we end up being able to work with long term and that I want to, you know, support into tertiary education and all of that stuff are the ones with the heart, you know, and the ones that prioritize kindness and they're going to use their math and their English and their biology and their whatever to do good.
0: It's like a cycle, right? Because the the students that you've elevated and that you've um, helped instill these values and they... They then come back and they come back to be to be part of your educate system and to become teachers, which it seems like a few of your students have done now.
2: Like I said, ninety percent of our staff are past pupils, and uh, and I'm extremely proud of them. You know the way they they do. They have that compassion for their juniors, and they put themselves out. and We've had to stop them doing it, but you know they would always be rocking up with. I met this girl on the street and I'm like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> not supposed to be cr- recruiting at the moment, but, you know, and, and they they hear about youngsters in trouble and they want to help them, you know, and that's, that's how you build a, a different society, isn't
0: it? Yeah. And Miriam, I mean, all of this would not be possible unless you were super passionate about education from the very beginning. Wanted to... Unearth what led to this passion and why education is so important to you?
2: It's the being a catalyst that's fun, you know, and you don't know where they're gonna go, and you get a call from somebody who Augustine, when he calls me April a couple of years ago, and he's he's Dr. Augustine, and I can hardly say it without a tear in my eye, because he was living in an abandoned freezer when he came to us how the heck do you take yourself from there to the years and years and years of fl- slog to now being Dr. Augustine Brunner? I cried. <laughs> you know, so.
1: And it's so beautiful the way that you actually have a, such a personal connection to those stories, because I think a lot of time you go through the motions of life, don't you? And you do what you do day in, day out, and you almost forget um, to an extent, particularly how many kids' lives you must have touched over the years, the fact that you've got these amazing stories of where people have come from and where they've got to, I think
2: is remarkable. Really, is another story that, I, and I love it when he speaks. Is this young lad when he came to us, he was called STG, Stop the Gang. Now he's he is a Bubaka and he's reclaimed his name ABK. And uh, you know, he he was living on the city dump when. Um, he came to us and he came because he heard we'd got computers and he might be able to nick some. And now he is head of the programme support team and he's finishing his degree in business administration. And he's a beautiful young man. And now he's got all these youngsters in the area that want him to be a counsellor. And because he's a great evangelist for being you know, education and being part of a loving family, and you hear him talk, and and he's amazing, and the transformation there is just just fantastic, and and I think it is the two. You can't just say good school. It's the relationships too, and that that massively matters. You have
1: mentioned that that's one of the things that you've been um, you've been almost lobbying the government on. Do you want to share a little bit of that story on your more, more recent changes that you're trying to impact across the country?
2: So, um, through the school improvement work, we've been doing um, we've been working as closely as we can with the government to sort of normalise, where I I would say we start is with respectful relationships. So that's teacher to student, so no more corporal punishment um, and welcoming children into the class and all of of that and engaging them in instead of having classroom rules. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, engaging the students in um, agreed expectations and they govern all of us including the teacher. We've got a very different government now, as in we've since uh, three years ago or so, we've had free education for from kindergarten through to the end of secondary. You know, when I first came, there was none of that. Eventually there was, in 2004, I think, um, there was sort of free primary and it was only sort of free um, and not really worth having. I mean, we've still got massive challenges in terms of quality. But there is now a government that's committed to education and providing education for all children in the country. And we are now sort of working with the Directorate of Science, Technology and Innovation to, um, as one, we're one of five organizations where we're trying to get an evidence base on what works for school improvement for the whole country. And that, you know, that feels like a sort of really significant thing to be doing where we can, you know, potentially do the learning that can then inform countrywide um, change.
0: The free education piece is very much a game changer. It removes that barrier, to, especially in the, when you first arrived in Sierra Leone, and I believe the only way you could get an education was to to pay for it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Everything was to be paid for at that point, yeah.
0: Yeah. I wanted to go a little bit more into how you made that, Model work right. So um, this model is a is a not for profit model. How do you get the support from the other side? So how do you enable the free education through the funding activities that you're doing and the um, the support that you have back back in the UK?
2: In terms of the fundraising, that it, it's churches, it's schools, it's individuals. It's if you can get people to actually make a commitment every month. And, you know, to envisage themselves funding somebody's lunch every day, every day, every day. Um, You know, that's a a thing. We don't get into the named kids because if Fad Matters' parents move to Conor or something, are you going to stop funding? You know, but it's like these sort of children with these sort of stories, do you trust us to put it in the general pot? Because you've got, with funding, you've got this big divide between restricted funding. And unrestricted funding. If you get restricted funding, if you give me money to buy a generator, I cannot buy rice with it, you know, and I've got to come. If I need if somebody else gives me the money, I made that mistake once. I went onto Facebook and said, we need a generator. And three people said they would give us money for a generator. And I had to go back to two of them and go, well, actually could I buy rice with it instead (laughs) or whatever, you know, but I had to, you know, you have to officially get that. So we get restricted funding for projects, the school improvement work, all of that sort of thing. And we, but for the, our own schools, it's churches, it's schools, it's events, it's community funding. So people that do regular donors that are trusting us to say, okay, I'm not giving it to you for a particular reason. We trust you that you're going to go and use it for doing what Educate does. And that's all about relationships again.
1: And Miriam, as we sort of wrap up, um, I suppose on a closing note, what advice would you give to someone else who's, you know, maybe at school, maybe at university, maybe actually just doing what they're doing and they're thinking about how can I have an impact on the world today? And um, What advice would you give to that person and what could they do to um,
2: do more than just kind of siphon off a little bit of money? To believe that you can and to get up and do it. Um, So to not be um, frightened that your little bit isn't enough so it's not worth it. You know, you don't know whether your little bit is going to grow. But if it's a little bit, if you can't change the world for everybody, you can change the world for somebody. And look for the opportunities. I suppose I'm quite a problem solver, which kind of is probably annoying to live with. But um, you know, the if I if I sort of look at a situation, and go, oh, I bet if we did, you know, um, and when you dare, and you get it wrong sometimes, and then you have to go back on your rethink and sorry, I don't know. But to just dare and to. You know, know that, even though you will make mistakes, that so long as you're doing it with love and commitment to making the world a better place, that you'll be able to learn and apologize and um, and and to keep learning, keep learning, don't think you've ever landed, and now you know that's a horribly dangerous place. And I've got braver and braver as the years have gone by at saying, "I need to learn." And I need to be able to challenge myself and not assume I know. And I, I, you know, I probably wasn't half as brave about saying that when I knew even less. (laughs) So very dangerous. But, um, yeah. I think that's a lovely
1: note for us to draw a close on because um, that's everything we're trying to do here to help people continue their learning journey. And thank you, Miriam, for sharing yours. And I'm sure a lot of people have learned a lot from this conversation. So thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. And I'll just add a note, if you do want to support Miriam and her cause any further, we'll add links in the show notes. So we'll direct you to um, Educade and where you can donate and if you want to get involved any further. Fantastic. If you would like to support further education in Sierra Leone or learn more about Miriam and Educate, please log on to Educade.org.uk. Thank you for joining us today on Lattes with Leaders. Be sure to check out our last episode, the one where she fights to get computers in the hands of all school aged kids, where we talked to co founder of Tanoshi on how her experience in corporate America shaped her current company. If you want some teasers to this episode and others, find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and TikTok at Lattes with Leaders. You can also listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and a ton of other platforms.